here with Delapo. Delapo, thanks for coming in. I appreciate your time today. I know you're very busy. You're back in session at school, and uh, you had a little spring break, but you've got class tonight. So thanks for joining me today. Hey, man, my pleasure, man, my pleasure. So Delapo, tell me a little bit about poetry for you and really your entry into this world of poetry, because I know it's a passion of yours. We connected right away when you were at Gilman giving a speech and a talk to the students about poetry and your work. But I enjoyed just talking to you for those brief minutes before lunch about William Stafford and, and mm. some of your teachers you had and just your career as a poet. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of your entry into this world and what it's been like for you. Yeah, uh, man, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, man, yeah, I love talking to you. It, it was, it was funny because, uh, I was with Sam and we were talking. I'm pretty sure I had to like zoom out of there. We didn't even get to finish our, our conversation. Um, so it was great to continue on the podcast. Um, yeah, for me, uh, William Stafford, you mentioned him. I, my entry into poetry, um, I wanted to take an acting class in my high school, which is the Matthew Catholic High School in Highsville, Maryland. Um, and I was super excited to take this acting class. I mean, I was, I, I was so surprised to see it on the course offering and, um, I signed up for it. You know, I got a notification that I was in the class or rather that, that it, uh, my signing was accepted. Um, but not enough students signed up for the class. So the class was canceled and I was placed in a poetry class with a wonderful teacher well, creative writing class with a wonderful teacher um, whose name is Paul Clark um, at the Matthew Catholic High School. And uh, I was in that class and I was, I was a little bummed out, you know, because uh, I, wanted, I wanted to act. Um, but in this class, man, I just, I don't know, I just, I, I enjoyed how um, uh, Mr. Clark taught. Uh, he took us on a field trip to St. Mary's College. Uh, we got to talk with one of his old teachers there. And uh, during one of our classes, um, you know, he really affirmed me as a writer. And um, I, I even sent him a, an email a little bit ago, uh, just telling him like, hey, I mean, you really, you set me on like the path that I'm on. You're one of those voices that set me on this path. Because um, when you say career, like as a, as, a, um, as a writer, one of the things I learned was to always look up the etymology of a word and uh, with career, when you look up the etymology, you see that one of the, the meanings is, is chariot. Um, and it's so interesting, we talk about careers and paths. So like your career is like this chariot you were put in, right? And it's a chariot, you're still like riding through various terrain and things like that. So um, yeah, for me, it started through school. Um, and yeah, wonderful teachers. And I know you have an interest, passion in education. That's what you're getting your PhD in, correct? Yeah, I'm getting my doctorate in um, in educational leadership. Uh, I um, I love teaching. I love kids. Um, I've taught every grade. So I've taught kindergarten to 12th grade, every grade except for, I believe it is ninth. I think it's ninth. Wow. Um, yeah, man, it's crazy. It's actually unbelievable. When I was in New York, I taught poetry to kindergarten through eighth grade. Um, and then when I was in, yeah, I taught poetry to kindergarten through eighth, and then I taught English to 10th and sixth. 
And I also taught English to 12th and 11th. Yeah, so ninth grade is the only grade I I haven't really touched. But um, yeah, man, I love teaching. How did you... Uh... How did you kind of get a feel for teaching those different levels? I, I, I imagine that must be difficult. I mean, I'm in my fifth year here at Gilman teaching English, and I kind of know what the junior slash senior student is like. But yeah. if I had to go down and teach sixth grade, I it would be sort of difficult. It would be a adjustment for me in terms of, you know, what to give them to read and what would make sense for them. You know, that's that sounds like pretty important experience for you that you were able to, I guess, succeed or have some experience teaching these different grade levels. Yeah. Um, man, a lot of grace, a lot, a lot, a lot of grace. Um, I, I, I was actually thinking about this recently, um, when I was teaching the lower, so lower school was first to third grade. This is a St. Anne's school in Brooklyn, New York. When I taught, uh, uh, in lower school, I didn't just go to the classrooms and leave. I also sp spent time speaking with the teachers. Uh, I spoke with the head of lower school, developed a rapport with them, had an office there. And I would also eat lunch with the kids, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, I mean, it's kind of like, it's you know, it's a little goofy. Like they'd be sitting on these colorful, small chairs and I would just pull it up next to them. And we would just be joking around. Uh, and uh, yeah, just develop um, a sense of community with kids. I mean, I, I really feel, I mean, kids are people, you know? I mean, they may not be as mature, right? But they are no less significant, no less miraculous. Uh, so um, a huge part of what made it easy for me was my connection with the actual kids at the lowest level. Mm -hmm. um, because for St. Anne's school, um, the way I like to describe it is that school for like, for a lot of schools, like sports is a huge, huge, huge thing, you know? And sometimes like uh, there might be a game going on during school and people might go to the game or, you know, uh, we might be in like a playoff situation and on the weekends, people are all all out for it. Uh, at St. Anne's, it was like that with the arts, you know? So um, the poetry teacher, uh, I mean, taught K through, I would say K through third grade poetry was mandatory. Uh, and then fourth through eighth grade, um, there were workshops for middle school students. So I taught middle school students and the, uh, and the, what was it called? It was called the middle school and the, man, I forget the name of, of it, but we would have a class from like fourth to eighth graders in a workshop together, which isn't oh, that's cool, crazy. Yeah, I know, right? But it, it seems like, man, how would that even work? But you know, you put people in pods, you give people different assignments. Uh, the kids, the, the younger kids, would be so excited to be with the big kids, and the big kids would, you know, sort of take kids under their wing. We played games, uh, so um, I think a lot of what I was able to, um, uh, a lot of the enjoyment came and a lot of the ease came from like the kids themselves. And I think just like a love of children that I inherited from my mother. Um, yeah, but I will say this. Um, uh, I can't say my favorite. This is recording, so I can't say my what my favorite was. 
Uh, but you know, there were times when I was with the older kids who I adored, mm -hmm. but you know, the older you get sort of like the, the more self-conscious you are, you know, uh, yeah. and, um, you know, it, it's a nice, it's a nice and a very stark contrast when you go from like high school to the kindergartners and they're jumping on you and it's unconditional love and you're trying to leave the class and they're all climbing on you and you can't even leave, you know? So it's kind of, it was a cool, no, yeah. I can see how that's refreshing, you know, because sometimes I'll ask my senior class a question that I think is very obvious and easy or interesting to answer. And I know they all have great ideas or interesting ideas about it, but they're also self-conscious that they won't always respond. It will always, you know, sometimes you yeah. be, but if you ask that in a sixth grade classroom, you know, you'll get some interesting, unique answers right away. Yes, man. Sixth grade, man. Wow. That is a beautiful turnstile of a year. Like, man, the kids are just, if you have a great group, the chemistry is amazing. You'll go through books like To Kill a Mockingbird, Miss Summer Night's Dream, um, A Raisin in the Sun. And I remember we read A Raisin in the Sun. And this is how I knew I had, we had like a great class this year. Um, uh, we're reading it and we're talking about Walter, Walter Lee, uh, and we're talking about the drama of Walter Lee's life. And one of the sixth graders during class just, just starts crying, you know? And, uh, you know, in that moment you're like, oh snap, what's going on? But the kid was crying because they saw the, um, they saw Walter Lee's internal struggle and how devastating it was for him and how he couldn't really escape it uh and we were and we're all in that moment together you know so i feel like with the older kids too you know when when we're able to jump into content uh and the content like feels like real life to them um it kind of like takes off some of that uh like you were saying some of like the performance yeah the that inhibitions yeah inhibitions yeah um interesting so i know saint anne's is a really good school a pretty progressive school in brooklyn i've heard a little bit about it i have a friend who i think i think teaches there i know there are a lot of mm. schools in brooklyn um that are really really good but i think it's saint anne's what was that experience like for you man um saint anne's it was a, it was a pleasure to be there um it it really felt, I mean, it was one of the first places that um, I, maybe one of the only places actually that I've been to where like the poetry teacher was was seen as a irreplaceable part of the fabric of the school. Um, as a poetry teacher, you know, you know, you know, mostly all the students. Like Marty Scoble was the, the poetry teacher there for for decades, if my memory is serving me right. So if you're a kindergartner from third grade, right, uh, and the kids usually stay with the school, that means that Marty, the poetry teacher, knows everybody, right? So he knew you when you were younger and when you're graduating, when you're in 12th grade, uh, you get to see your your poems that you wrote when you were younger. They uh, The school gives it back to you. Uh, throughout the, the halls of the school, you have... Um, big posters of poems by kids. So you'll be in like a ninth grade, you'll go down the stairs and you'll see a poem of a third grader. You'll see a poem of a fifth grader, just on the, in the halls, in the halls and on the store, in the stairwells. Uh, so in that school, I mean, it really uh, 
when they champion poetry so much, like it's just so hard. It, it's hard not to believe that poetry is um, a, it's just hard not to believe that poetry is, is a part of life, you know? Um, yeah, and it's necessary, you mm -hmm. know? So I enjoyed that a lot. Um, I was living in Brooklyn when I was teaching there. So I had, I went to Columbia for, for grad school. So I was living in Manhattan um, during that time. So Brooklyn was very new to me. Um, and I knew a little bit about the history of the school, but I, I pretty much was just, I was just trying to do a good job. I mean, mm -hmm. I had over a hundred kids to teach each year. Um, I was teaching things that were new to me. I was trying to get acquainted with the, with the community. Um, you know, people talk about how, uh, I mean, there were things about, uh, uh, like some, some kids, their, their families are like artistic families and maybe like actors and actresses that, that people know of, but I tried not to really, uh, pay attention to that. Um, I was more interested in like the development of the students. Um, but yeah, I would say that those kids, not only were they really smart, but they were really, um, they were really like tasting the pleasures of the arts, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, which was a sight to behold. And there also are no grades, which to me was so crazy. That but, is crazy to me. I don't, I, I, I yeah, did hear that about crazy. St. Anne's. It's crazy. But it, I mean, but it, you know, so what happens is instead of, uh, instead of um, holding um, each kid up to like this numeric or, um, you know, alphabetized sort of mark, uh, you're tracing how each student is doing with the content uh, and you give an anecdotal, um, we call them reports. You write a report on the kid and the report gives, it's basically like a, um, it's not like a movie, but it's like a, I don't know, I guess, I guess you can just call it a report of how the kid did in the, in the class. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like a timeline. Actually, so, so, yeah, it's like a timeline. Yeah, it's like a timeline. Yeah, it's like a timeline, but it's actually harder than grading, I would actually say, because you can't just say, oh, hey, this he got an 84 or she got a 96 or this person got this. You have to really remember like, oh, they said this when this happened. and then they wrote this and they were thinking this in class and this connects with this. And we were doing this in this unit. It's way more um, complex than just a number, yeah. but man, it was, sometimes man, I, hey. sometimes I feel like the grades do get in the way of a lot of the, the actual learning, you know, at Gilman, I feel like I understand why students are very stressed about their grades, you know, because grades matter, but, my worst fear a lot of the times is when a student comes into my classroom and they only see me and they only see the curriculum as a, as a way to get to a number. And I feel like that's really sad, you know, because they're missing the content, but I, but I still feel like, I feel like a, a grade helps you, you know, acknowledge where the student actually is. And it's a much easier system. It's messy. You know, it's very, very hard to strike a balance between the two qualitative and quantitative measurements. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things in St. Anne's mission statement that really always struck me was 
um, they really believed that the kids had something innate, that it was our jobs as teachers to um, help the kids develop. It was our job as teachers to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like facilitate a learning environment where that, that innate gift that the kid has um, can flourish. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I thought that was beautiful. I mean, I think that that is, I think that's very true. I mean, I don't think you have to be a St. Anne's for that to be true for you. I think in general um, that each person is uniquely gifted um, and there's a, there's a pleasure in teaching a student towards them realizing their inherent gifts. I mean, that's incredible. Like you still need to develop skills, of course, right? hundred percent. And you should be, um, you should be maturing hundred percent. Um, and then there are different like curricular things that we make sure happens in various departments and disciplines. Um, but I appreciate that so much, Jake, man. I thought that that was, I really wished that, um, uh, I wished that students who came from backgrounds that weren't as, um, let's say privileged, say that, um, I wish they had that experience too. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish they had the experience where they didn't have the pressure to add a number or a letter to their identity so that they could be seen as significant or important or worthwhile, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I like to, in my English classes, uh, I really like to try to get to know each of the students and what they're, what they're really passionate about, what they're into, because, mm. you know, when we're developing skills of writing and analysis, for instance, of a book or a text, sometimes I like to take a break from the books that I'm actually giving them and asking them to read and say, you know, oh, Delapo, you're really interested in this movie, right? You really mm. like this movie. You watch this movie on Friday night. Instead right. of doing anything else, why don't you write an analytical Come paper on, on that? You know, because that's yeah. that's a little bit more exciting for you than to write it on The Great Gatsby, right? You don't want to do that. Yeah. You're not into that, but you're into this movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, that's that's great. Um, I was I was going to ask you about when you were saying this. I was like, I hope you give the example of what what you what you do. Um, nah, yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great. And then also, like, we can see a connection between the film and The Great Gatsby. Um, I mean, I know um, uh, you and I were talking, you were talking about the movie The Menu yeah. last time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in The Menu, there's that character who, like, has this unbelievable, you know, sort of, like, faith in the chef and everything the chef does is great. And, you know, he believes that, um, the culinary arts are like this far out, you know, sort of, uh, 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 yeah, untouchable thing. And you can draw parallels between that and sort of like the, um, the blind, like hope of Gatsby, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
the infinite hope of Gatsby. Like the book says, like that's that was his gift. Like he was supremely gifted in hope. Um, you know, uh, hope and faith aren't necessarily the same thing, but like two characters who are like hungry. I have this insatiable hunger. You can maybe compare the two. Yeah, that's a, that was quick. Um, I was also thinking about some of the other characters in that movie, The Menu. And if you haven't seen The Menu, it's a fascinating <laughs> movie. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, it's really, really good. Um, but the the characters who get in trouble or on their food, there are these charts of their insider trading. If you remember how they made their money through yeah. immoral ways, you could talk about that and maybe Great Gatsby and how he obtained all of his wealth and his connection to Meyer yeah. Wolfsheim. I yeah. mean, there are a lot yeah. of different things you can, you can, you can find these. I almost think when you're writing analytically, you need to have kind of a creative mind too, because you have to look at some of the things that you were seeing in the film and twist them in your mind to fit what you're, what you're after, what you're trying to compare it to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was talking to a student um, at University of Maryland, uh, and they are like going into like this aviation. They're a senior. They're going into like an aviation um, uh, company. And I think that they're like a. I can't remember their major, but maybe it was like bio. Uh, I think it was like bio, but also involved with engineering as well. And um, I was talking to them about the arts. I was like, hey, do you see the arts and what you, you know, and what you do as well? And, uh, you know, she was like, yeah, 100%. I see it 100%. You know, she's like, I feel like every single discipline is an art. You know, so what you said made me think about that. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. I have a student in my junior class who came up to me the other day, and she's, I think she's starting to get an interest in poetry. So she's mm. like some of the things we've read in class and she's been asking me to send her some poems that I like just to, to read and get a, get a taste for it. And she asked me, uh, what is it that makes a poem good in my opinion? And, uh, wow. I gave her my answer, but I, I'm, I'm curious to hear oh, your you perspective. Your answer, man. You got your answer. <laughs> so my perspective is a poem. I, I think there has to be some kind of physical change in you after you, you read it almost like a, mm -hmm like an aha moment, but a, mm -hmm. any type of feeling, whether it's a sigh mm. or a, mm. some kind of physical change from beginning to end. And I really wow. like Sam. Um, Sam talks about the tattoo line of a poem, like the, the one po poetic mm. line that you feel like you could get a tattoo of because right, it's right, so right. powerful <laughs> and it goes deeper than everything else in the poem. I think that yeah. line is crucial towards the end of a poem in creating this feeling within you when you get to the end. So a poem I really like is The Blessing by James Wright. Oh, of course. Come and you on, get to man. the end and it's and you finish the poem and you know, something happens, you know, something happens from beginning with all the description, the beginning of the horses and the beauty of nature, but there's something deeper there, more profound that is expressed in the tattoo line at the very end. Yeah. Oh man, that's man, that's beautiful, man. Shout out to Sam. Sam, if you're watching this, man, shout out to you. Shout <laughs> out to you, love you, man. Um, yeah, man, that was a great. That's a great answer. I mean, your answer. Um, 
you know, Emily Dixon said something a little bit similar that like, hey, with, with a poem, when I read a poem, like I know it's I know it's a poem if it like if I feel like it takes my head off, you know, it's how, you know she said it a little bit more violently than you did. But, uh, you know, that's, that's Emily Dickinson for you. Um, what is, well, the question is, like, what is a good poem? How do you tell? Yeah. How do you tell? And, and I think she asked this question to me because some of her friends are writing poems and they're asking her for some feedback on it. And she's, mm. she's not really sure how to evaluate her friend's poems because she doesn't know what it's supposed to, supposed to really do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there are a couple of ways of looking at it. There's like the technical side, you know, um, a poet once told me, um, sometimes the poem fails, use the word, they use the word fail. And I'm just going to use it because that's what he said. Um, sometimes a poem fails because we don't yet know how to achieve the technical part of the poem yet. So um, he might be talking about um, how to make sure like your metaphor is a metaphor that is um, that isn't uh, mixed, you know, or making sure like the logic or the rhetoric of the poem makes sense or um, making sure that uh, the sequences um, say something separately and as a whole. Um, you know, so there, that's a thing too, like that has more to do with like craft. Um, so for example, I can be a basketball player and we can be playing a game and we're playing a pickup game and I keep, I keep hitting it from three. I'm shooting from three and I'm hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it, hitting it. And it's just going in and we keep winning. But toward the fourth game, you know, first game, second grade, second game, third game, I'm hitting them, you know, man, we're balling. And on the fourth, fourth, uh, go we're playing, I start missing it. I start missing it. And I'm shooting it the same way I was shooting before, but I've just been missing it. And, you know, we lose that game and you, me and you were talking and you're like, yeah, you know, I think what it is, I think your form is good, but over time, the way you're leaning, it takes more energy out of you. So over time, you're going to start missing more. So that has to do with like mechanics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's like a mechanic side to it. Um, uh, but I also think, you know, Keats said, uh, beauty is truth, uh, or truth is beauty and beauty is truth. I believe is how he said it. I think that that's very true. Um, I think sometimes that's, that's what you're talking about. Like sometimes I read something, I, my wife and I, when we're watching movies together, sometimes I'll pause the movie because I'm like, yo, I'm never going to see this again. You know, I'm never going to see this for the first time again. Let me say it like that. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to see it like for the first time again. And I feel like this is, a, you know, I can just already tell it's bringing all kind of stuff out of me, you know, in terms of like the, the beauty of the moment. So I just pause it and I just sit there, you know, and I'm like, oh man, this is, this is really precious. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I press play or then I keep reading. Um, yeah. So I think that there's the mechanic side and then there's just like the straight beauty side. Um, uh, uh, Frank O'Hara has this poem, The Day Lady Died. Have you heard of it before? I have, I believe. I'm familiar with some of his other poems, but The Day yeah. Lady Died. I think I know exactly what that one is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who's he talking that about in that poem? It's talking about, um, I believe it is Billie Holiday. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Billie Holiday, because they used to call her Lady Day. Yeah. Um, and in the end of the poem, so the poem is Frank talking about um, his schedule uh, uh, starting at 1220 in New York, Friday, 
um, all the things that he does, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, um, he picks up a newspaper um, and the newspaper shows a photo of Billie Holiday. And the photo of Billie Holiday takes him back to a memory. And he says, and I'm sweating a lot by now and thinking of leaning on the John door in the five spot while she whispered a song along the keyboard to Mal Waldron and everyone and I stopped breathing. Because I think that that's what you're talking about too. And what Dickinson's talking about is when you experience something and it feels like it just, it just takes your head off. It's so beautiful. Um, and how much, how much more special is it when even after the moment happens, if something happens, if you see something that reminds you of that moment, it just takes you back and you're like, oh man, yeah, that was so beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. So poets like Frank O'Hara and Charles Bukowski, they come, come to mind when you say truth is beauty because they're very, uh, you know, they talk about very mundane things, it feels like, but there's still something very unique and special about their poems. You know, I, I really like how authentic their poetry is. I think that's part of it, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, man. Authenticity is so great. It's also access. There's an accessibility to it. Um, yeah, because and it kind of goes to what we were talking about with the with the high schoolers. You know, I think that. um I think that just because something is just because something is accredited or something, it doesn't mean it's the only special way, you know, uh, just because like uh, people are writing in blank verse, you know, and the blank verse is seen as this fresh and the time seen as like a fresh way of, of poetry, a fresh way of expression, it doesn't mean that we can't take it a step like further, you know, it doesn't mean that there isn't another fresh avenue, you know, for an art. Um, and I think that, you know, kids, high schoolers, you know, at times, um, you were talking about like the inhibitions, you know, it's just like, a, you know, that, that fear that like, okay, maybe me being like, like maybe me being authentic to like, how this work is is developing in my own spirit. Maybe me being authentic to that is like, I don't know, maybe I'll be embarrassed, you know, or maybe the teacher will say, no, go pick up, go pick up the Norton anthology, you know, or something. <laughs> With nothing again, Norton, Norton anthology, by the way. <laughs> so for your own writing process, what um what needs to happen? Like, what do you need to do personally to write good poetry and I, I really like how you were talking about basketball you know because that flow state is something that I've always found yeah. interesting right you hit every shot and something happens where you just can't miss and do you uh -huh. experience times like that in your own writing where you feel like everything that you're putting down is a part of this flow state or does your best work kind of come in waves uh. Man, that's a great, 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 great question, man. Um, when I was younger, um, I spent so much time reading about other writers and reading about their writing schedules, reading about um, uh, what they did during the day, 
reading about their diligence. Um, I spent so much time and just, <laughs> you know, uh, I had my own practice as well. Um, and, you know, I, what I have found over time, I'll give you a story. Uh, so Vincent Van Gogh, I think everyone is familiar with Van Gogh. Van Gogh, you know, amazing painter, uh, beloved. Um, yeah, I mean, there's not much to say. Uh, even even in uh, the virtual reality world, there's like this this um, Van Gogh experience thing that people have been, you know, jumping into. Maybe you've been. Have you been? I have not been. I wanted to go. Uh, a, okay. Another movie recommendation for you is At Eternity's Gate about Van Gogh. Have you seen that? Oh, I have not. Oh, okay. One of my favorite movies. It's it's the guy who uh, who's the villain in Spider Man, I believe, is the lead actor. I forget his oh, okay. name. The the Green oh, Goblin yeah. guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. I know you're talking about his name is his name is uh uh I know it's probably gonna come come to us later. Yeah, I know you're talking about very um, good movie though. Yeah, okay. Dope, dope, dope. Um yeah, so Van Gogh, so to keep the story short. Van Gogh was, was staying somewhere, uh, and I think it had to do with his health. He was trying to recover, and he would, he would write letters to his brother. And um, this place where he was staying, he would go out uh, during the day or during the night, I can't quite remember. But he would go out and, he, and, and would paint, would paint the landscape, um, and would paint like very, and paint various, uh, you know, versions of the landscape, maybe moving it, moving the, um, moving to capture one scene or another scene, et cetera. And um, he painted a number of them and then wrote a letter to uh, his brother. And in the letter, you know, he was telling his brother about the paintings that he had completed and stuff like that. And he talked about the ones that he liked. And um, then he mentioned one painting. So he said, he, I like this one, I like this one. And he said, but man, there's this one, there's this other painting I did. He's like, man, yeah, like it's, it's like to know, to know, uh, I think he said something like, there's nothing special about it. So he said something to that effect. And that painting was the starry night, right? Which is like one of the most like beloved paintings like ever. And he didn't at the time, right? He didn't really have that much of a pull towards it. So the reason why I use that example is because I feel like for me, um, I think that my best, I don't know, I mean, I, I do a lot of editing. Um, yeah, I mean, I write every week, uh, but I'm, maybe I'll say this time around because my second book is done. It's more like editing, um, you know, more like editing, like a film, like, Hey, we shot everything. So like, now let's arrange what goes first, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as I'm looking through things, I'm just sort of, I'm like, Hey man, listen, you don't know what the best thing is, what's going to touch this person or whatever. Just be faithful. Uh, so for me, man, I try to be faithful. Um, I try not to be too critical. Um, you know, it's not easy for sure, but, uh, from, and then to answer the flow question, I feel like the flow comes, the flow comes like when you're not thinking. Like when, when you're writing, flow for me comes when I'm just not really thinking. I had this process when I was um, at University of Maryland as an undergrad, where every night before I went to bed, I had this um, 
I had this small notepad. It couldn't be like bigger than my phone. It was like, oh, there's my, there's my wife on my. Look at that. I got a whole photo there. So it could be, it could be any bigger than this, right? Um, and I would just write on that every night before I went to bed. I'll just write, just whatever was coming to me. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And that was great because I it just developed this muscle memory of just flowing, 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 flowing. And then you come back and you edit it. Interesting. I like that. There's a there's a Van Gogh quote that I really like. He said, and this is in the movie, he said, a grain of madness is the best of art. And I think mm-hmm. a grain of madness, meaning like you've got to be there's kind of a state of subconsciousness or unconsciousness in your, in your writing. That's why I think, we, you know, writing before bed, a lot of artists like Salvador Dali, he used to paint, he used to like fall asleep and then try to capture the image that he had right when he was about to fall asleep and, and paint that. Yeah. Um, so the, the unconscious or the subconscious mind has so many fascinating aspects to it that I think work well as pieces of art poetry, painting, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, man. Wonder, you know, wonder is, um, wonder is absolutely, um, I mean, it's incredibly generative. I feel like for me, wonder and catharsis are like maybe the two most generative, uh, um, Pulls for me as a writer. Um, uh, one, one of the the ways I like to think of myself as a writer is I like to become a foreigner wherever I like. If I'm writing about something, I try to make myself a foreigner to that like to that space, so that I can be open to picking up on things. I can treat them as if they're new, you know. Um, and that is me kind of like putting myself in the place to to see things as wonderful that I might see as regular. Um, that's really important, I think. Um, and I think that that kind of when you're when you're in a state of like near sleep or in a state of you know maybe not being altogether there in your in your in your head, um, you know you're a little you're a little looser, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you you. You stumble upon like special things. Um, yeah, I can see that. I think an- an- another thing that I wish I could do because I I I'm, I can't get up in the morning. It's difficult for me to get up in the morning. But a lot of people like to write and produce art in the morning because yeah. I heard because I think someone said this that your ego is quieter. You're not thinking so much about yourself and you're just kind of oh, wow. flowing in that in that time of the day, you're not really thinking about your schedule and what you have to do. You're, wow. there's a lot of peace there. Yeah. You know what I think about, man, I think about, um, uh, Akhmatova a lot. You familiar? No. Um, uh, yeah. Um, I think so, sometimes when they, sometimes when people say her name, um, and I think the first time I heard it said, um, it said Akhmatova. I don't think that's actually true. Um, Anna Akhmatova was a was a Russian poet in the 20th century um, during a, a time of not just unrest, but um, I mean, during a time where like the arts were uh, clamped down on. Um, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, propaganda 
um, and she was uh, a well-known poet um, and continued writing throughout uh, this period. Um, and I actually want to make sure to, I actually want to capture. Yeah, so I know it was during the time when Stalin was, was in power. Um, I'm not a historian in this, in, in, in that area, but um, what I have knowledge of is how um, Akhmadova and other poets during that time, because it was essentially illegal to write um, anything that was not like in alignment with what the state wanted, um, they memorized their poems. Mm -hmm. So uh, Akhmadova's poems would, since it can't be written down, it's in people, you know? And um, and uh, if you burn, if you burn my house, or you burn whatever, it's still living, you know. And it has that. It has what I think poetry really um, has the opportunity to do is uh, it has a living quality, a remaining quality. And I bring up Akhmadova because, uh, man, I I think about her, and I'm like, man, that's real. You know, like that's that is very much um the human spirit enduring um the recognition of poetry as essential and the recognition of recording as essential you know recording what's happening recording how how um we're changing um yeah i think about Akhmadova a lot hmm. um so some of your favorite poets, I know William Stafford is uh, mm -hmm. somebody who we talked about a little bit, but if I am a person and, and you know, I'm interested in this conversation and I sort of like poetry, but I don't know where to start, who are some people, uh, some poets, some artists that you would maybe direct me to and, and say, start here. These, yeah. are, these are my favorites. Yeah. Pablo Neruda, uh, Pablo Neruda, heavy, 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 um, very, very great place to start. Um, like a king of wonder, um, amazing writer. Uh, I would say uh, Yusef Komenyaka, another heavy, uh, I mean, incredible, incredible poet. Um, another king of wonder. Um, I would, Lee Young Lee. Um, Let's see. Um, let's see. Who else would I? Would I? Gwendolyn Brooks, Lucille Clifton. Um, oh my gosh, Gwendolyn Brooks is is out of this world. I mean, out of this world. Uh, let's see. Gwendolyn Brooks has a poem um, that I read with my students called just looking it up real quick it's called big bessie throws her son into the street by mm. Gwendolyn brooks mm -hmm. one of my favorites yeah man y'all should read there's a poem called uh beverly hill chicago oh my gosh very good i mean unbelievable Gwendolyn brooks I, I mean i can list a bunch of people um you know i uh kyle dargan um 
But William Stafford is is somebody we talked about, and you had a really good quote from him that you uh, that you keep in mind a lot yeah. in, in your own life and your own writing. What was that one again? Um, yeah. So the hold on, I'm I'm just looking one more. So I know that there's. Did I say Natasha Trethaway? I don't think I did. Okay, I'm gonna stop at Natasha Trethaway. All right. Uh, so, um, yeah. So William Stafford. Here's another person. Like I study. I would study people's lives and see how they, how they conducted themselves as writers. And William Stafford uh, would write early in the morning. Here's an early morning riser. So you write early in the morning. Um, he would get like a biscuit and tea. Man, see how detailed I was? Biscuit and tea, sit down, um, sit down on his couch and um, and would write every morning, like without fail. Um, I'm sure he missed a couple of days, but you know, that's what they say without fail. Um, and on the last day of his life, he did this practice and wrote down a poem. And in that poem has these lines. It says, uh, my mother, told me to never try and impress anyone just be ready for what god sends and that is it's just always stuck with me man uh, i grew up in a christian household i mean faith is faith is life um i mean faith is a part of the fabric of humanity i mean it just it just really is like you can have faith in your bank account you know you can have faith in your own knowledge you can have faith in your community um you know but yeah my parents raised me and having faith in god um and stafford stafford really touched on a lot of things for me but i found that to be like really helpful in uh this sense of like not performing you know and not like um uh especially as as a young person you are so concerned with like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, when is it going to happen? You know, uh, but that, yeah, that was important for me. Love it. Yeah. Um, so to, to wrap up our conversation here, Delapo, are, are there a couple poems or one poem that you've written that you wouldn't mind sharing with our viewers and our listeners? Okay. Um, well, this one, this one is like a, it's like a more creative one. Um, and this piece is based off of, um, an interaction between, um, a child and their father who is stationed, um, uh, abroad, uh, who's enlisted. Uh, and in this instance, um, parts of the son's letter. All the song titles read your name. Your voice over radio. The hand, purple, a nightbird, after all its singing. Turn off the planes above your base. Mines sleeping beside a colony of fire ants. Dates and names torn away after mom reads your letters father i hear pop then pop 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 come home in your body 
That's excellent. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. So that uh, this is man, this is a piece. Man, this is like what year is it? Twenty twenty three. This is like maybe six years, seven years old. So this there's actual language underneath this. Okay, <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, actual language underneath. So uh, the way that this piece came about was, um, I wrote the entire poem. So you can see, I hear your voice on over radio whenever mom reads your letters. I can see the hand you pen them with. Knuckles ring with teeth marks, wrists purpled like a night bird. Right, that's the first stanza. Right. Mm. I mean, I enjoy the stanza, but um, I was just, I just wanted to play around with it, you know, and to see what it's like when a part of the communication is uh, erased, yeah. you know. Um, and I feel like distance can do that. Um, you know, distance, um, yeah, part of, that's, uh, we throw things and they don't make it all the way, you know? So, uh, yeah, man, this is, this is one of those, one of those pieces. Uh, so you could actually see, so this is, so this is how I, I, I titled some of my documents. This was, uh, September 27th, 2020 copy. So it's a copy of something I was working on. I just called it untitled joy. Um, and this is a note to myself, you know, so this document, so we're talking about writing, this document has 67 pages in it. Oh my gosh. It, it has, you know, a ton of pieces that I've been working on over time that I've just like shelved. Um, here I can even scroll up and see how it starts. It starts here. Don't worry about ordering. Just go one by one and done. This is notes to myself, you know, uh, and, you know, I'm going through. So this piece isn't done, um, but it's just in fragments. Um, and then maybe I'll highlight something that's interesting to me. Uh, and maybe I'll highlight something in a different color if it has a different, you know, a different meaning to me. Um, but, yeah, this is all. This is a draft house right here. Um and you have some yes, other poems I, from from other authors in there as well. Um, I th I have references. Okay, I have some references. Um, I may have another poem in here. I might. Um, I think all of these are mine. Um, but you'll also see, like, I'll have here. Here's a poem called "Dear Father." The night kneels at my window. It stares at me, right? And then, "Dear Father," here, um, the sky begins at my windowsill. I walk the night around my room like the shadow of heaven. You know, so it's, it's just changed over time. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's sort of, you know, some of the stuff that goes on. <laughs> one poem I really liked when you spoke at Gilman was the one about, was it Venus? Was it the, the art piece oh, that you yeah, saw? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. With the, the Trayvon piece here, I can, I can pull that up. A story about the body. Mm-hmm. So this is that piece right here. Um, and since like this audience may not have uh, heard that reading, it's basically a piece, um, that, um, follows my time in Italy studying abroad, uh, after, um, the death of Trayvon Martin and, um, me looking at this painting of beauty and it's idealizing beauty through the goddess, um, uh, Venus, uh, and, the painting also is sort of, you know, it's projecting a kind of 
vision or image of beauty. Um, and being in Europe and walking around and being stared at and going to places and seeing sculptures of black people as like servants, there was just, it was, it was a lot of, um, yeah, it was, it was difficult, you know? So when I was looking at this image of beauty and I was looking at all these people stare at her, stare at this painting. And then when I leave, people are staring at me like for like a different reason, like all around the city. Uh, and with the, with the death of Trayvon Martin, you know, being, being killed by, um, you know, there's, there's that, the law stand your ground law, but I mean, Trayvon, I mean, Trayvon should still be here today. Um, it was, man, I just had a lot of trouble, uh, a lot of trouble in this, in this time. Yeah, it was very difficult. Um, yeah, and the poem ends, Trayvon was gone. When I leave the group, who notices the limp in my walk, the fever of light in my head, the weight of my panting, who notices the exit wounds? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, thank you for sh for sharing some stuff today. It's a lot, it's yeah, awesome. man. Yeah, man. It's uh, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you for letting me share that uh, that eraser poem, man. That was fun. Really cool. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I hope uh, we can get together in person sometime soon. But you know, yeah. thank thanks for being a guest on the podcast. It was cool to hear you talk about some poetry and your process and some of your influences. Yeah, man, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for the opportunity, um, man. I really, um, I'm really touched, you know, by how you care care for your your students, but also um, just how open you are as a as as a person, man. So thank you so much. Of course, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. See you awesome. soon. See you. Man. See you later.